0: You know, that bright and beautiful spirit, the child. So please let yourself sit comfortably for this time. Be at ease. Today is the celebration of the birth of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it is also the inauguration. Probably some of you listened or watched that. So I have... Some things I'd like to read from Martin Luther King and from Arnold Lobel. You'll find out who he is, some of you. And a few words for Bill Clinton if he's listening. (laughs) Tonight what I'd like to speak about is letting go and the freedom of the heart. Letting go is considered one of the central practices of those who are wise and of spiritual life. One of the definitions of enlightenment or liberation or freedom in the midst of all things given by the Buddha was this. He said there are five processes of life. There's the process of form, which is our body and all the forms and experiences of form that we interact with, the trees and the beings around us and so forth. That's always changing, the form, the physical elements of form. There's the process of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, all the kinds of feelings, joys and sorrows. There's the process of perceptions, views and recognition and memory, There's the process of responses, not only are there the forms and the feelings and the perceptions that we see and how we understand, but then there's all the thousands of kinds of responses, the stories we tell, the thoughts we have, the ways we react, you know that process? And then there's the process of consciousness itself, which is the knowing quality that receives that and understands. Our life is made up of these five changing streams or processes. They're called the five skandhas or the five aggregates. And the definition of enlightenment is simple. And for an enlightened person, there is the forms of the world and feelings and perceptions and responses and consciousness, just as we all have. And for an unenlightened person, there are the same forms and feelings and perceptions, only there's an adjective used to describe them. There are the grasped forms and the grasped feelings and the grasped perceptions, my view, my way of seeing it, and the grasped responses and the grasped consciousness. And the difference between liberation or freedom or enlightenment and not is simply that one element of grasping or letting go. In the Noble Truths of the Buddha, in his very first teaching, he made it extremely clear as he was trying to articulate this freedom that he had discovered. The amount of grasping is equal to the amount of suffering. My teacher Ajahn Chah used to go around the monastery at times and look at people and say, Are you suffering? If you said no, he said, great, have a good day, you know. And if you said yes, he said, oh, must be quite attached. And then he would kind of wander off and ask the question of someone else. And he wasn't saying whether you should or shouldn't be attached. That's completely one's own uh, choice or grasping. But it's a clue to understand this puzzle of freedom or letting go. It's a little bit sometimes like the light on the dashboard when the light lights up and it's red which is to say when there's a signal of a lot of suffering, then it's a clue to examine the amount of grasping in our life. So Ajahn Chah would teach, he said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. And if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, everything will be peaceful for you. It's up to you. Here is one of my Dear Dharma friends and teachers, Ajahn Sumedho, who's an American monk abbot in England, one of Ajahn Chah's main Dharma successors, speaking about letting go. He said, the practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed with compulsive grasping and trying to control the world. You simplify all your meditation practice down to just two words. Let go rather than trying to develop this practice and develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the Buddhist sutras and learn Pali and Sanskrit and Madhyamaka and Prajnaparamita and get ordinations in the Hinayana and Mahayana and write books and become a world-renowned expert on Buddhism and Eastern spiritual psychology. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. (laughs) Let go. This was how I practiced for years. Every time I tried to understand and figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until whatever it was I was grasping would be released. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist (laughs) conferences. Some of you might have the desire to become the great Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world, but instead I suggest just being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world in some famous way, just be an earthworm who knows two words, let go. You see, ours is the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana, so we have only this simple poverty-stricken practices. <laughs> But if we speak about letting go, the question arises, how do we reconcile letting go with commitment, with dedication, with care for things? And many people in spiritual life wrestle with this important question. And you're supposed to wrestle with it. It's not some simple answer that you just kind of take in and say, well, okay, I'll do that. It's important to really examine what does this mean in our own life? What does it mean to let go? in a wise way, it's worthwhile to study. Is attachment always bad? Is there such thing as healthy attachment to our children, to the environment, to work, to our dedication to justice? In what way does Buddhist teaching use the word letting go? Buddhist psychology, that whole teaching of freedom from the Eastern tradition speaks most fundamentally about how the heart meets this moment. Do we meet this moment with greed and grasping? Do we meet this moment with aggression or judgment? Do we meet this moment with delusion, confusion? Do we meet the moment experience with fear, anger, lack of forgiveness? You know those stories, he did it and she did it and this is how it's supposed to be and it's not and all the stories we tell. Is that how we receive this moment? Or do we meet the moment afresh with openness or patience or ease? with a kind of letting go in the heart. I was involved with some divorce counseling at some point not long ago. And one of the partners in this particular circumstance was very angry. They both were angry, but one particular. And she'd been angry for a long time, for a year or two, you know, just angry and angry. And I'd heard this story and so forth for a time and I became curious about it not trying to say that it was bad or the wrong thing and I you know I could sympathize she had certain reasons for being angry but but why be angry for two years why keep it going or a year oh I know none of you have done that but <laughs> why would somebody so I became curious this is a very interesting thing why do we do this and I said how does the anger serve you now, what is its function? And in one way, it turned out that it was the glue that kept them together. It was the glue in my parents' marriage. It was the main way my parents made contact. It was. That's how they made contact, through their anger. It was a very intense, kind of fierce contact. And then they'd go away again, come back and try it another time. And I said, well, all right, so that's the way you, can, you still have stuck together, by being angry at each other. Now, just kind of hypothetically... Suppose you were to let it go. You know, you have reasons, but it's been a long time. Suppose you were to let it go. What would you then experience or feel? This person said, oh, a lot of loss, a lot of grief, a lot of sorrow and pain. So, sometimes letting go isn't so easy because it means really facing the truth of our situation. And then they went on further, said, you know, because sooner or later you are gonna have to let go, aren't you? Said to them, I guess so. And you have to face what's true, what's happened. Then it went back into that same kind of discussion that divorces do about what should we do, who gets the kids, who gets the house, who gets, you know, how do we do all of this, you know. And in that discussion, there was a lot of moralizing about who was wrong and who was right, you know, and who had the high moral ground for what had happened. Do you know those kind of discussions about who's right and who's wrong? you Have ever participated in those? And that discussion had been going on for a long time. And I said, well, you know, you could solve it that way. Who's morally right and who's morally wrong, and therefore they get this or they get that. That's what's just. But there's another way to look at it which would also require letting go, a big letting go. Letting go of who was right or wrong or who did the right or wrong thing you know, and as the basis for how you decide what happens, and instead asking, what would be the best for the children? What would be the best for everyone concerned? Even if that person was wrong, or they were a louse, you know, and they acted in a wretched or bad way, what would be the best for everyone concerned? That would require a different kind of letting go. So letting go is very important if we want to find freedom or love or happiness. And just as I spoke of it in terms of this divorce process, it's the same as we respond to the fact that U.S. is still a major weapons supplier on the face of the earth. Or we respond to child abuse or the racism of our culture the enormity of the prison system that we're building, the hunger of children and adults around the world, the economic injustice. How are we going to respond? Out of anger? Because what's needed is not the ideas of peace or justice, but someone who can act in a peaceful way, in a just way. So how does the heart meet this moment with openness and freedom, with letting go? And what does this letting go mean? It's a poem I read a month or two ago, I like so much, from Rumi. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Rumi the Persian, you know, hundreds of years ago, speaking to us. And what he speaks about is what we train as we meditate, as we do this practice of mindfulness, respectful attention. We are training this presence. Sometimes it's called sacred presence. The presence to bow to what arises and meet it as it is. That's a kind of letting go. In a way it's a letting go of how it's supposed to be in our ideas and being with things as they are. It's a wonderful capacity to develop this presence for what guests arrive. This being human is a guest house. We keep getting guests. Treat each guest honorably. But what about changing things, someone might ask, instead of letting go. My dear friend, Robert Hall, who is a psychiatrist and healer and one of the teachers in the Spirit Rock Teachers Council. I remember when I first met him, he, this is More than 20 years ago, he was the founder of the Gestalt Institute of San Francisco and one of the main figures in early years at Esalen Institute. And and at that time, a very um, well-known therapist and healer. And I just finished my training in clinical psychology and was starting to work with people. And I said to him, I said, Robert, you know, I've gotten to where I can really see people's problems a lot more clearly now you know, I see what's the problem and what's wrong with them and how they got stuck. I see their history more clearly. But I don't quite know what to do with it, to heal it, to fix it yet. But at least I can see it. You know, but I don't quite know how to, how to fix it. And he said, oh, I don't do that. And I said, you don't? What do you do? He said, no, I, I don't see my work as fixing uh, things in people. He said, I sit with another person together or other people. And what I do is I try to create a place where we can be with what is true in a respectful way. And all that needs to heal or change comes out of that. Martin Luther King Jr. again speaking. He said, here it is, this approach of love and nonviolence does not immediately change the heart of the oppressor. It first does something to the hearts and souls of those committed to it. It gives them new self-respect. It calls up resources of strength and courage that they did not know they had. And when finally it reaches the opponent, it so stirs their conscience that reconciliation is becomes a possibility and a reality. So the change, the radical change of life, of freedom, awakening, really happens in our own heart. To be mindful then is to live in the present moment, is to live in the reality of the present, which is the only reality. And it's only here that the heart can be transformed. It's not in the future or the past, but here. For all time is here. The past and future are always in the eternal present. And if we take care of the eternal present, if we receive this moment with a respectful or mindful heart, then everything's covered. Past and future life. But what about direction? What about dedication? What about commitment? Still, you have to solve these questions, yes. This is from Zen Master Dogen. He writes, Speaking of enlightenment, when you are on a boat in the middle of an ocean, and you look around, the ocean looks circular and no other way. Yet the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. It is like a palace. It is like a jewel. It only looks circular as far as your eyes can see for that moment. All things are like this. What he means, at least to me, as I read that in part, is that we don't really know where we're going. We're in the middle of this journey And it looks this way for a moment, but then tomorrow it can look a whole other way. Where are we going? How far are we going? So one answer or one suggestion that comes from this tradition of awakening that the Buddha spoke to is the direction set by the vows of a Buddha or Bodhisattva that is in all the changing circumstances of the world, which keeps changing day and night, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, all the circumstances of the heavens and hells of every universe that exists or could, there is a kind of vow or direction, the Bodhisattva vows set, of compassion. May my words and deeds bring liberation to all beings. Even if the sun should arise in the West and the world be turned upside down, the Bodhisattva has only one way, which is to bring benefit and liberation to all beings. And so often there are these vows that are chanted in different retreats and so forth. Sentient beings, all beings are numberless. I vow to to save them all, to bring awakening to them all. It's the vow of compassion. Desires are inexhaustible. I vow to release them all. The dharmas are boundless. I vow to master them all. And the Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to attain it. These vows are taken as a reminder, really as as a direction. They are like a compass or a rudder that sets the heart's direction, even in rough seas, even in difficult times. Since we really don't know what's coming, or where we are, where we're going so clearly, instead we can set our compass in the heart of what our deepest wish for this earth, for our life is. Again, Martin Luther King, he said, I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King tried to love somebody. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. I just want to leave a committed life behind." That's his example of the bodhisattva vow. What do we want to do with this life that's been given? And with all the changing circumstances and difficulties, what is the place that we take our guidance? How might we do this? In the simplest way, it's to ask the question that happened in that dialogue around the divorce. Will this be a benefit? Whether it's facing injustice or your beautiful creative vision, small or large things, the gardens you plant, the work you do, does this bring respect and love and justice and freedom? Is it a benefit to others? To do it from that spirit, to use what Martin Luther King again called the weapons of love. He said, always be sure that you struggle with the weapons of love. Never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. As you press for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline using only the intention of love. For if you succumb to the temptations of using violence in your struggles, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness. This is the rudder to act from the heart. Because power, and power is an amazing thing, power is temporary. You have it for a time and then you lose it. And you can look at ex-presidents and ex-kings and ex-generals and ex-anybody. You know, in the end, there you are dying at the end of your life. And what power do you have? Power is temporary. Love lasts. To love takes a great deal of letting go. I hope you've noticed that in your relationships, in your work, and what you give to the world. To respect takes a lot of letting go. To be free takes a lot of letting go. A deep capacity for forgiveness is part of this letting go, to allow people to be as they are just as they are. And they're not usually how we want them to be. I mean, we have enough trouble getting ourselves to be how we want us to be, right? So it takes a kind of courage, a flexible and forgiving heart to really love. Now in this, I don't at all mean to say that one shouldn't plan and think and have direction. It's Okay to plan. It's important to take responsibility. Commitment is essential. If you sat on your meditation cushion and got up as soon as it got a little uncomfortable, you know, my body hurts or I'm a little bored or hungry, how far would you get without commitment? You'd never learn to meditate. And in your relationship, whether it's in work or in love, or parent to child, whatever it happens to be, it requires the same commitment, the commitment to be present. So it's important to take responsibility and to act with that commitment. But the commitment isn't to control it and control the outcome. The commitment is to be present again and again this moment with love and awareness. That's the commitment. That means letting go over and over again. This great dilemma, this great spiritual question is at the heart of the Bhagavad Gita. Here is Arjuna on the field of battle in this great kind of scene. And his charioteer is Krishna, Lord Krishna, one of the incarnations or one of the faces of God. And they have this whole desire about how can... This whole, excuse me, this whole debate, dialogue about how you can live in the world, this world of commitments, and find freedom. And finally Krishna tells Arjuna the secret. Bhagavad Gita, he said the secret is to act, act with the best intention of your heart, to act without attachments to the result of your actions, to do the best you can to set your heart on what is beautiful or gold or what is alive and loving and free, to act without attachment to the result, because that's not in your control. Again, Martin Luther King. He said, I still believe that standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy or find success. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure, And avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. To act without attachment to the result. It brings this tremendous freedom. You do what you can do beautifully and then it comes out as it does. This is the wise art of letting go. And it should be distinguished from indifference. Letting go doesn't mean not caring and it doesn't mean dismissing what's so and it doesn't mean indifference. It is a commitment to being present without grasping, without trying to control the openness of the heart, of mindfulness, of presence, without grasping. And this unwholesome attachment or grasping after money and things, or our lovers, or our children, or our body. Wherever there's grasping, it causes suffering, fear, struggle, conflict, sorrow. Look at it for yourself. I mean, you need to be committed to your children, to love them, to be present for them, to raise them. But if you try to control them and grasp them, don't want them to change and want them to be a certain way, it's a recipe for struggle and suffering. And the same in our work and the world of money and with our lovers and our our own body. And it also is based on something quite false. It presumes that we actually can control something. Security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do children as a whole experience it. This is Helen Keller speaking. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. It presumes that we can control things. And to awaken as the Zen master, the... uh, Sixths and ancestors said, to become free is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. The world isn't perfect and it never will be according to your way of thinking and not to be anxious about it. Remember this story I read some weeks ago. I kind of like it because it illustrates it in a different way. A few years ago at the Seattle Special Olympics, nine contestants, all physically or mentally disabled, assembled at the starting line for the 100-yard dash. At the gun, they all started out not exactly in a dash, but with the relish to run the race and finish it, best they could. All that is except for one boy who stumbled on the asphalt after only a few steps, tumbled a couple of times and began to cry. The other eight heard the boy cry. They slowed down and paused. Then they all turned around and went back, every one of them. One girl with Down syndrome bent down and kissed him and said, maybe that will make it better. Then all nine of them linked arms and walked together to the finish line. Everyone in the stadium stood and the cheering went on for 10 minutes. There's tremendous beauty in the heart that can let go. That's really the beauty of confidence and trust, that can let go of grasping and respect the seasons of life. We can respect and love and care for and be dedicated to the environment, to the things we love, to the art, to the work that we do, but not grasp it. This is from the Tao if you're listening, Bill, in Washington. (laughs) If you want to be a great leader, you must learn to follow the Tao. Stop trying to control. Let go of fixed plans and concepts and the world will govern itself. The more prohibitions you have, the less virtuous people will be. The more weapons you have, the less secure people will be. The more subsidies you have, the less self-reliant people will be. For governing a country well, there is nothing better than tolerance. The mark of a tolerant man is freedom from his own ideas. Tolerant like the sky, all pervading like sunlight, firm like a mountain, supple like a tree in the wind, he has no destination grasped and makes use of anything that life happens to bring his way. Nothing is po- impossible for such a one because he is let go. He can care for the people's welfare and greet each day as a mother cares for her child. This is the way to live, living in the Tao. There's a great happiness and beauty in the heart that can let go, that can move through the changes of life without so much grasping, that can respect the seasons. There's an openness or a graciousness of heart that's possible. To live with a wise heart means we must understand the basic truth of life that Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said, sums up all of the spiritual teachings in three words, not always so, not always so. If we could really understand that and live from that truth, we would be free. The basic teaching of Buddhism, he goes on, is the teaching of transiency or change that everything changes is the truth for each existence. No one can deny this truth and all the spiritual teachings are condensed within it. Wherever we go this teaching remains true. This is also understood as the teaching of selflessness because each existence is in change. There is no abiding self. But without accepting the fact that everything changes we cannot find perfect composure. Unfortunately, although it is true, it is difficult for us us to accept it because we cannot accept the truth of transiency, we suffer. And yet, when we realize this everlasting truth, that everything changes and find our composure in it, there we find ourselves in nirvana. This is freedom. Letting go, trust the natural law of things, the changing of the seasons. It allows us to love what is true and what is present without trying to control it. There's a wonderful story in the book written by Helen Luke, a book called Old Age. Her story is called The Planting of the Ore, and she rewrites the last part of uh, Ulysses' life, where Ulysses in the last part of his life, the last part of the Odyssey really, excuse me, not Ulysses, it's Odysseus, um, Odysseus, where Odysseus in the last part of his life wants to go on one more adventure out into the seas like he did as a youth, have, you know, meet the, meet the great adventures that the ocean will bring to him. And then he remembers the Wisdom of the blind prophet Tiresias, who he saw, who said at the end of your life, Odysseus, you have a different task than this Odyssey that you've taken you to the sea. And so instead he turns inland with his oar. The story is the planting of the oar. And he's supposed to go so far inland that people see his oar and they say, What is that? They think maybe it's a, a farming implement, a winnowing fan, because they've not seen a boat and oar. And by turning inland and going into the mountains, he must search for a deeper meaning in his life than just recreating his youth and going on one more of those adventures. There's something else that time now asks of him. Close your eyes for a moment, if you would. Just a little reflection for you. What is it, as you sit quietly and reflect, that is now changing in your life? What is it that is ending? Work and relationships with others. What asks for acceptance? What asks for letting go? And can that letting go be done in the loving and steady way with your heart still present, simply not grasping? Or if you can, something new will be born. Can you sense what new wants to be born? Feel how much room in the heart, how much freedom there would be <coughs> if you could let go what's come to you. A little bit more speak, and then a story when the kids come down in a few minutes for them. Maybe a better word than letting go, because letting go often can sound like we're trying to get rid of something. Oh, I want to let go of that. Don't like that. Then I don't want to let go of that one too. I don't like that one either. A better word than letting go might be letting be. When people come to meditate, especially on retreat for a day or 10 days or three months, I'll often ask at the end, Did you get something? I hope not, because this is not the place to get something. This is the dump. This is the place to leave stuff, tensions, your stories, your fear, all that stuff, and come to beginner's mind, to be open, to see with the eyes unclouded by grasping, to listen with a heart that doesn't judge, to have a beginner's mind. Now, letting go is an intuitive, instinctive art. You can't really teach someone. You have to learn it in yourself. It's like music. You know it in your body. Do you know this story from the insurance company? letter to the insurance company in response to your request for additional information in block number three of the accident reporting form. I put poor planning as the cause of my accident. You asked for further details. I'm a bricklayer by trade. Hi, you kids. Come on, sit up front here. Come right in. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new three-story building when I discovered I had 500 pounds of brick left over at the end of my work. Rather than carry the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel using a pulley attached to the side of the building. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, loaded the bricks into it, and then I went back to the ground and untied the rope holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of brick. You will note in block number 11 of the accident reporting form that I weigh 135 pounds. Due to my surprise, being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rather rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the second floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explains the fractured collarbone. <laughs> Slowed only slightly, I continued my ascent, stopping when two knuckles, the knuckles of my right hand were deep in the pulley. Fortunately, at this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was, realized that this was not the time to let go. There's a timing to this, right? At approximately this moment, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer you again to my weight in block number 11. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. This explains the two fractured ankles. Yes. So there's a kind of art to this letting go that we're talking about. Knowing where and when. In the right moment, your body knows it. You can feel the grasping and you can feel what it's like to let go. And each life, each life of ours has an amazing plot, unexpected turns that we can't avoid. Amazement, sorrow, loss, birth, success, catastrophe, joy, death. It keeps happening around us, in us. How to hold all of this. To let go is really to trust in the heart, to be present no matter what. It's beautiful, you know. I had a friend who just came from Thich Nhat Hanh's monastery, Plum Village, staying with the nuns. And she she fell in love with all these Vietnamese nuns there. She said there was so much commitment and innocence and pain and sweetness all together in this, this one beautiful community. Letting go is trusting the heart to be present no matter what. And again, Martin Luther King spoke. He said, I'll get to your story pretty soon, by the way. He said, we'll match, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. And we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win yours in the process. We need, if we want to let go, we need to accept the truth, the first noble truth, that there is loss and aging and sickness and suffering in life, that it's part of the fabric of life, just as there's birth and joy and beauty, that they're woven together. It is the truth. And learn not to grasp but rather to live with love, with letting go. And from this comes freedom. So I'm this Zen master I interviewed for this book I'm working on. He said, There was that day where I felt like the Buddha sitting effortlessly hour after hour, completely loved and protected by the whole universe. And I saw the whole idea of spiritual renunciation as a kind of a joke, trying to make oneself let go of ordinary life and pleasures. In fact, nirvana is so open and joyful, is so much more than any of the small pleasures we grasp after. You don't renounce the world, you gain the world. Letting go. It's not a weakness. But to let go is really a sign of a strength of heart, the ultimate strength. The last thing from Martin Luther King. You can find it here. Let's in this one. said, I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. That is why right temporarily defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. I believe this day and every day that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. And that's the spirit that makes us alive, that pushes all those little green plants out of the earth and even through the cracks of the cement and the sidewalk and breathes our bodies. I mean, we go to sleep and we trust. Our heart beats and our bodies breathe. And today, 200 million kids in America were mostly fed and taken care of. And I know there are troubles, but the great majority of them were loved by the generation that preceded them and their children will be cared for. It makes us cook for one another and build things and love one another. and It's there in all of our life. And we can rest and trust in that which always grows anew. To let go is really to allow life to move through us in a new way. So here's the story for you kids. You ready for a story? It's called The Garden by Arnold Lobel. And it's in the book Frog and Toad. If you don't know the Frog and Toad series, you've missed something. This is how it goes. Frog was in his garden. Toad came walking by. What a fine garden you have, Frog, he said. Yes, said Frog, it is very nice, but it was hard work. I wish I had a garden, said Toad. Here are some flower seeds. Plant them in the ground, said Frog, and soon you will have a garden. How soon, asked Toad. (laughs) Quite soon, said Frog. Toad ran home. He planted the flower seeds. Now seeds, said Toad, start growing. Toad walked up and down a few times. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head close to the ground and he said loudly, Now seeds start growing. Toad looked at the ground again. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head very close to the ground and shouted, Now seeds start to grow. Frog came running up the path. What is all this noise, he asked. My seeds will not grow, said Toad. You are shouting too much, said Frog. These poor seeds are afraid to grow. My seeds are afraid to grow, asked Toad. Of course, said Frog. Leave them alone for a few days. Let the sun shine on them. Let the rain fall on them. Soon your seeds will start to grow. That night... Toad looked out his window. Drat, said Toad, my seeds have not started to grow. They must be afraid of the dark. Toad went out to his garden with some candles. I will read the seeds a story, said Toad. Then they will not be afraid. Toad read a long story to his seeds. All the next day, Toad sang songs. To his seeds. And the next day Toad read poems to his seeds. And all the next day Toad played music for his seeds. Toad looked at the ground. The seeds still did not start to grow. What shall I do? cried Toad. These must be the most frightened seeds in the whole world. Then Toad felt very tired. And he fell asleep. Toad, toad, wake up, said Frog. Look at your garden. Toad looked at his garden. Little green plants were coming up out of the ground. At last, shouted Toad, my seeds have stopped being afraid to grow. And now you will have a nice garden, too, said Frog. Yes, said Toad, but you were right, Frog. It was very hard work. (laughs) So let's sit just for a minute, quietly. Can you sit quietly or lie very quietly? You can stay right where you are, but just be very quiet. And in sitting quietly, let yourself feel the ease, the joy, the freedom of heart that comes from letting go. The spirit of love or renewal that can be in each moment when we learn this art of letting go. Let's do a little one-syllable chant. It's nice because these kids are up here. They can chant with us. The chant of the sound opening, the sound of opening or letting go, the sound ah. Let's sing that together just a little bit. You too if you want, you kids. Ah, ah, ah. May your week ahead be blessed by joy and ease, by great love and great letting go. Study the letting go a little bit and see if you can understand what wise letting go means. So I thank you. Two more things very briefly. There's one person who needs a ride to San Francisco. Is there anyone who can give a ride to San Francisco? To someone? Yes? Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. Um, come up here afterward, and I'll introduce you. Oh, somebody else who can give a ride to San Francisco. One person. Yes, in the back. Would you come up and and, and uh, I'll introduce you. Um, I'll be here next week. Please drive carefully as you leave because it's dark. Um, and uh, thank you for your support and donations to Spirit Rock and the baskets that are there. Or, what helps things to grow and help allow me to teach. And um, have a wonderful week. See you again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.